The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's that time of the week again for our spy show. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined by co-host, as every week, the charming and delightful Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing, Mark? I'm good. Uh, charming and delightful. I like that. Um, but we have to just make a quick mention that today is the CIA's 76th birthday. And I don't even know what to say about that. More other more than one has a love-hate relationship with a place where I worked. It's a dysfunctional family. Um, but in the end, uh, uh, one of the best jobs uh, in the world. But I guess I will say happy birthday to my old place, sort of. Wow, that's very touching. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that's as deep as I get. No, it's really beautiful. We are joined also by a wonderful guest, um, Julia Yaffe, who is leading authority on Russia-U.S. relations, a founding partner and the Washington correspondent for Puck. Previously, she served as senior editor for the New Republic, was a staff writer at The Atlantic covering politics and world affairs, and a correspondent for GQ. And she's great and one of my favorite guests on any show, even shows I'm not on just to watch. <laughs> and uh, I think the first time Julia and I did a podcast together, it may have been the very first podcast ever done. I mean, it was like the dawn of time. Wow. So uh, welcome, Julia. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, on this show, we talk about things related to intelligence uh, and espionage, but I think um, the real, I mean, so whatever role you play in that, I, 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 you know, I mean, if you wish to discuss it, we can. But um, I think that Mark was drawn to having you on to talk a little bit about Russia. So I want to turn it to Mark and you can frame this as you will. Sure, sure. And, and first of all, a uh, huge thanks to Julia for coming on. I mean, I when I first met Julia, I think one of the one of what I what I said to her, and 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 before we dive into the substance, I got to get her reaction. But Julia actually had had when I was in at the agency, she, she had a cult following inside CIA. Wow. The kind of the Russia analysts and operations officers literally read everything that she wrote. There'd be an article of hers. Someone would have a little kind of cover sheet on it. it would get passed around, and that's and and I say that in a serious note. 
Um, that's how well thought of she was. But I don't know, like when, when, whenever I would say this to someone like, Hey, by the way, you have a cult following inside a secret intelligence organization. Maybe they get a little uncomfortable. So Julia, what do you think of that? I, I that still statement? think you're blowing smoke up my butt. Cause every time you say it, I feel this nice breeze on my butt and I'm like, Oh, my oh, God. oh. <laughs> not true. So I, okay. I will tell you, I, I ran into a friend of mine recently and he said, actually, do you know Julia Yaffe? And I said, I, I do. And so that's the, uh, the, the a level of affection you had inside the world's premier spy organization. So you got to be doing something right. Thanks. This is, by oh, the way, Julia, as you know, this is how they get is there. This, in a- this is how they get <laughs> their intelligence. They like you write something <laughs> in Vanity Fair and they go, holy shit, that's actually happening in Russia. Right in the PDB. It goes, it goes straight. I mean, I, I mean, I've told this story once before, but I, you know, I used to have this company that did open source intelligence. And one day, uh, one of my partners there was Tony Lake. And one day he came in and he said, I just had the most amazing conversation with this Ethiopian guy who is in our parking garage because a lot of Ethiopians work. And I said, What was that? And he said, Well, he came up to me and he said, What do you think of the coup? And I said, well, I didn't know there was a coup. And Lake said, well, neither did I. And so Tony asked him, where do you learn of the coup? And and the guy said, um, well, my brother just called me from Addis. And so Tony, Tony goes into his office and he calls George Tenet, the, the, the head of the CIA at the time. And he goes, so uh, George, what is this about a coup? It was Ethiopia or Eritrea or someplace. And Tenet said, I didn't hear anything about it. And so the CIA found out about it from the parking attendant in our building. So, you know, the fact that they got it from you at Vanity Fair is a much higher quality uh, source of, of for the CIA. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say there. So um, I have a friend here in D.C. who uh, owns some of those parking garages and he is a very gregarious man and he's also very interested in national security matters. And so I always hear stuff from him kind of before I hear it from other places. And there were, especially during the Trump era, he'd be like, Oh, uh, I'm hearing that, uh, Trump's bodyguard is going to be, um, uh, investigated for like, bringing prostitutes to Trump. And I was like, come on, Bill, that's crazy. And then it would be like two days later, I'd see that news item. And I think because, and I've, I also have, I have friends who work in the hospitality industry in DC, you know, uh, attending bar, owning restaurants and bars, and they have friends in the national security space who, because I think these friends aren't journalists, they aren't uh, fellow practitioners. um, These people kind of open up to them you know, and tell them stuff about their work. Uh, and I, one time after such a conversation, I thought, you know, this would be a really good place to place somebody if you're like a foreign intelligence uh, service. Yeah, no, that's the way it works. I, they, they, I learned more about what was going on in international affairs from the woman who was the maitre d' at the Regency Hotel in New York than I did, mm. from, you know, because they would all, everybody would come in there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she would say, oh, did you know Melania was having an affair with this guy? Or, you know, Ehud Barak would be sitting there talking to Michael Cohen. And, you know, it's just this is this is how that's how that was your whole profession. Right, Mark? You just 
hung out in bars. Well, it is. Well, well, I, as, I think that's uh, his current again, you know, profession. Also, it's, it's well, okay. So, so we're going to have to talk once again. You bring up the, my favorite dive bar, which, by the way, Julia Vienna has been bar. to. Oh boy, it's a great the bar. Vienna Inn. Uh, we, we we spend an inordinate amount of time on this podcast talking about the Vienna Inn. My bar hopping to the Vienna Inn. But uh, okay, so we're, let's go back to to a really serious point on mm-hmm. on Russia Ukraine. And one of the things, uh, Julia, which I thought was was wild. I was ready I to I talk mozzarella you. sticks, but okay. I know, we'll, we, but we got to we got to be right, yeah, yeah. semi serious. Yeah. But the other day, I think I texted you after. And by the way, this is kind of the the this is Morning Joe, uh, you know, annex right here because all all of us has been been on uh, so frequently. But Joe Scarborough was actually reading from Puck hmm. um, a piece that you had you had written, and so that that obviously shows kind of the the influence you have here for for very good reason. But I mean. This is something that is right up your alley in terms of Russia, Ukraine. You know, it's, uh, this is uh, going to be a pretty broad question. But where are we now? You know, how does it end? Um, has the U.S. done the right thing? I mean, there's so many questions to ask you on this. But just your overall perceptions. And let me just, with one quick aside, is that one of the things I have very strong feelings on this. I know David does too. But I love reading your views on this because there's always a little. It's always a little bit different than what I'm thinking about, and it actually it makes me think more challenges me and particularly when you talk about kind of the inside view from what's going on inside Moscow. So what are your thoughts on Russia, Ukraine? Well, first of all, thank you for that um, introduction. And second of all, I think um, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend about this who is of a similar background and is in this space. And I don't have a good feeling about this. Um, just like I didn't early on in the war. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw the piece in the times at the end of last week about, uh, how Russia has actually not only have export controls, not really hurt it, but they've gotten around it and they've got around them and have managed to almost double in some cases, their production of various munitions and, weapons. Um, it's turbocharged their economy, which has a lot, I've written about that, about how it's allowed them to basically make up for the GDP growth that they lost, um, after the invasion and the imposition of all these Western sanctions. Uh, and you know, it's been very clear for a long time, uh, that since Putin didn't win outright very quickly in the beginning, that he's been preparing for a long war and um that is not good because he can, like Russia can do that they can do a long war um they will do it until they collapse and i you know it never you never know when russia might collapse right uh if if history is any guide but i think for the you know medium term they can keep going for a really long time and i don't know that ukraine can ukraine doesn't have a choice and they have to keep going as long as they can. But in terms of um, what they're getting from the West, the West hasn't ramped up production as fast as the Russians have. Uh, We're still hemming and hawing about which systems to give them. By the time they get there, the Russians very quickly find a way to work around that. Uh, You know, we celebrate these small attacks, these, you know, cardboard drones flying into Russia or uh, or other drones blowing up in Moscow City or blowing up a submarine uh, in in the Black Sea, a Russian submarine in the Black Sea um, that was dry docked, uh, because those those are great on social media. But I think um, I keep thinking about what my 
uh, former professor said, Stephen Kotkin, the kind of great sage of Soviet history, and it, who's the reason I'm not a doctor and I'm doing this. Um, you know, he said very, I, I think on the one year anniversary of the invasion, he said, Ukraine is winning only on Twitter. And, and that's my worry that Ukraine is going to run out of stuff. It's going to run out of men. Uh, and, and Russia can just keep going because Russia doesn't care about its people the way Ukraine does. Um, they can hide everything. There's really strict draconian censorship. It's a really brutal regime right now. Uh, and you know, the, you know, sometimes seems like, you know, verging on Nazi Germany. And I just, I like, oh, and the other thing is like, look at what's happening on the Hill right now in the U S and, um, you know, we're fighting over $24 billion for Ukraine, which is both a lot of money and not a lot of money, uh, in the, in the grand scheme of things. And, um, Putin is making it very clear that he's waiting for Trump to win and wrap this all up. He thinks he can out outweigh us and he might be right. Uh, well, let's, let's look at the flip side of that for a second and just sort of test some of the assumptions. Um, I, no doubt Putin is waiting for Trump to, to win or at least waiting to see what happens there. Um, but I, I think the counter arguments that some people might make are that uh, as far as the U.S. Congress goes, uh, while there is a small group that opposes the funding, uh, certainly looks like for the foreseeable future there will be a majority in both houses that will support it. Um, certainly the, the Biden administration has not backed away from its support, nor have the Europeans. Um, and, I, and I guess, you know, you, what it comes to is, I, I, and I'd be interested in your reaction, Tom Friedman made a three-day trip to, to, to Kiev and, and, and came back and wrote a column. And essentially, the punchline of his column was uh, that this will be a win for Ukraine if Ukraine ends up in NATO and the EU. And they may not get all their land that back that they wanted, um, uh, but it will be a loss if they don't. You know that that actually, the critical issue in this war is not where exactly you draw the lines. It's that from wherever the line is um, westward, Ukraine is seen as part of Europe. And I'm just wondering well, what your thought is on that. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that uh, Tom Friedman caught up with, you know, what the conventional wisdom was like five or six months ago in Washington. Um, but, uh, you know, what that was basically what people were talking about in the spring. But I think the summit at Vilnius uh, put all that to rest. Um, basically, NATO said, you're not, you can't get into NATO while there's a war going on, which basically incentivizes Putin to keep the war going, right, in whatever form, uh, in some ways it gives him veto power over Ukraine's membership in NATO. And it's pretty clear that NATO doesn't want Ukraine, and the EU is also in no rush to accept Ukraine, especially while there's a war raging. And so we're getting this workaround of the, with the so-called Israel model and these bilateral um, you know, this web of bilateral security agreements. Uh, and it's it looks like it'll be something like 30 
bilateral agreements between Ukraine and the U.S., Ukraine and Germany, Ukraine and France, etc. Uh, and that it will look more like what Israel has. Um, is that a win for Ukraine? Is it? I don't know. I mean, no, is it? Do you think it is? I mean, is if it's a security guarantee for Ukraine, it could be considered one. But what what kind of security guarantees are we willing to offer Ukraine now? Right, like um, we we st- in some ways it's saying like, hey, Ukraine. Uh, so the idea behind the U.S. security security guarantee and all like the kind of the blanket idea for all of them is that we're going to help Ukraine build an army that can deter and push back any future aggression from uh, Russia. That said, okay, how are you going to build, um, you know, the plants and factories that are going to make all these um, homegrown, home-developed missiles that, you know, Russia can take out at any point? Um, Second of all, I imagine that these secure none of these security guarantees are going to involve boots on the ground. In some ways, these security guarantees are a way of kind of trying to like wiggle free of what's you know what's been going like because it's clear that the West like that this is not sustainable for the U.S. for NATO um, to just keep throwing stuff into the maw of this conflict uh, while we're not really producing enough of it. So. I mean, again, I, we don't know what the details of this is going to look like. And, you know, imagine if we were trying to develop this um, security guarantee with Israel, if, you know, the the six-day war was a six-year war and you were trying to do that in the middle of this, uh, like throughout the six-day war, uh, the six-year war. Uh, and if that's the case, then how do you stop the war long enough to develop these capabilities or help Ukraine develop these capabilities. Um, and is it just going to look like, you know, as Michael Kaufman has long said, you know, the kind of basically the Israel Arab world model where, you know, in the 20th century where there would be a war, then there would be some kind of ceasefire. Uh, and then a few years of a kind of very cold, tense peace, and then another war, and then, you know, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Um, except, you know, the Arab nations weren't massive nuclear powers. So I don't know. Uh, Mark. I'm worried about Ukraine. Mark, 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 you, wait, why did you invite this woman onto the show? She is such no, a downer. I, I, she is su- no, excuse she, me. Well, I'm a ray of like, fucking sunshine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wait, what is that? What is your quote all the time? Tomorrow will be worse. I, Tomorrow we verse, I love that. Well, you know, um, so you know was, the you know the the Russian j- joke I've tweeted about this before is that you know on the whole, our life is pretty good. Uh, things are better than yesterday, but definitely worse uh, worse than tomorrow. <laughs> oh no, right, okay, the, the reverse. So, sorry, better than uh, worse. You know what I mean? Anyway, worse than tomorrow. Know, yeah. Got, okay. Little... No, but I, th- I think that you know one of the things that um, I find problematic just about kind of the, the daily analysis of the conflict is it's done without the notion that that the U.S. cannot affect change there. And maybe I'm going back to my old kind of CIA hat where, you know, we did things, we do things, we, we would send things to people. Um, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. But I don't like looking at 
this conflict um, just from afar. And one of the things that I that I always wonder, and it's I don't think it's too late, but why can't why haven't we done more? So, for example, I'll go back to this. This is, of course, you know, between myself and some some others. That, you know, it's our pet peeve on on lack of provision of attack missiles, but just weapon systems like that. So, if we were to do those things, if we had, and if we rushed them now. Um, you know, there could be effects on the battlefield. And so in, in some sense, it's interesting to analyze the conflict like we all do from afar, but we kind of forget sometimes that we actually, if we, we became a bit more aggressive, um, if we weren't trapped by, and Julia, you've written this a lot about this, kind of this, this you know, these fear of, of escalation. Um, I, you know, I think we've blown by red lines all over the place. There are no red lines. And, and so, so ultimately, you know, with your maybe semi-pessimistic view of things, you know, is, is that really written in stone or could we do more if there was an epiphany at the National Security Council and all of a sudden we started doing a hell of a lot more, even understanding that domestic politics in the U.S. might um, make this, you know, a long-term assistance uh, problematic. But, you know, don't you think there's, uh, it, there, there would be things that can be done to really affect that analysis if we had the guts, moxie, whatever to do it? Yeah. I'm not a military expert, but the those that I've spoken to are concerned that, you know, before it was, we just got to get them Abrams tanks. And then the Abrams tanks uh, ran over the, you know, Russian minefields and we're not, and, and Ukraine's kind of holding the rest back because, you know, a minefield's minefield. And it seems like, um, yes, the U.S. Ca- could be more aggressive, but some of it is just that there is no silver bullet here and it's a war of attrition and um, Russia just has more resources and more people. And um, yeah, and like they, they're, you know, it's become, Putin has made it exist unnecessarily existential for them too. Uh, so I don't know, like how much would we, I feel like there also has to be not just a qualitative, but a quantitative advantage. I don't know. Because I think if we sent things like these attack missiles, you know, in, and, you know, with the, with the uh, intent, with obviously the Ukrainian intent on um, hitting Crimea, hitting logistics points, supply deep, su- supply depots, you know, in, in the rear with sufficient quality, you know, sure, qua- uh, but, but, but you're not hitting, but you're also not hitting, uh, you know, the factories, deep inside Russia that are cranking out, you know, before the war, the, st- uh, the st- statistic was that they could turn out a hundred tanks a year. Now they can turn out 200 tanks a year. And that's after web, uh, export controls and all these sanctions, whatever, uh, they've just thrown their whole economy at this. And, you know, if, if nobody's hitting those, you know, somewhere in Siberia, how effective are they going to be? And like HIMARS were incredibly effective once uh, the U.S. finally got them to Ukraine. And then and then the war changed and the conflict changed, just like it changed away from the javelins. Like it, it keeps evolving and changing. And but then but still at its core, it's a it's a war of attrition. Well, I, and that, I, that's what that's what makes me worried. I, I, no, as a, as a as it should. And, and we haven't even gotten into the issues that you touched upon with the US production capacity and and the the our inability um to keep up with our needs here um this is a point normally where we take 
quick break. We say thanks to everybody in the general public who's been listening. Uh, and we say if you want to be able to listen to the whole podcast uh, or all of any of our podcasts, all you have to do is become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, click membership, $5 a month, um, and you get to hear about 30% more of all these podcasts. And I think by the end of this year, we look to be producing about 20 podcasts a week. So that's a lot. Um, so if you're in the general public and you uh, got to go now, thanks for joining us and uh, think about becoming a member. If you're a member, uh, stand by. 